text for this morning's sermon is from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Let's begin in Luke chapter 4, verses 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So far, the reading of our text this morning. In response to the sermon, let us sing together from hymn 53, the song text for this morning's sermon is about the temptation of Jesus Christ. And that seems to be without saying. But I say it because there can be a tendency for us to read our Bibles and a passage like this one in particular in a certain surface level way. That is, one in which we move quickly from the text to its direct application for our lives. It happens in this way. We read that Christ was tempted. And we know all too well that we also face temptation. So upon reading a passage like this, we might quickly rush to lessons for how we ought to resist temptation following the example of Christ, of course. And though perhaps that approach may yield some fruit for us, 
what ought to be stressed this morning is that this passage is not primarily about us. It's about the temptations that we face. But it is primarily about our Lord Jesus Christ and the temptations that we face. In fact, why this passage is located in each of Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels as they account for us the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. For only when we understand that the three temptations Christ underwent were entirely true to himself, will we understand the good news that this passage has made to us and holds out for us. For it must be pointed out that the devil will never tempt you to turn stones into bread. He'll never tempt you to do that. The devil will never tempt you with the offer of, of all the kingdoms of the world. He will never tempt you to jump off the pinnacle of the temple because he's trusting in your faith. But these temptations were deadly arrows directed right at, at specifically at our Savior, and therefore they are intrinsically at the very heart of the gospel and also at the foundation of our salvation. If Christ had fallen to any one of them, our hope for salvation would be entirely lost forever. But the good news that Christ, or the good news is that Christ did not fall, and so it is only through him that we uncover the wonderful message good news of this passage and why it matters for us. There's an old adage, an old saying that I believe is true. If you break, you find leaves. But if you dig, you find gold. May that also be our mindset whenever we open God's word and study its meaning for our lives today. So let us dig together in in our text this morning and let's summarize some of the following themes. We have hope from Christ who knew Adam and resisted the devil's temptations. And there's these three points. First, the triggers of Christ's temptation. Secondly, the trial of Christ's temptation. And thirdly, the triumph of Christ's temptation. Once more, the triggers, the trials, the triumph of Christ's temptation. Now our text begins by mentioning that our Lord Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Spirit. And that reminds us of what Luke has just told us about Christ's baptism in the previous chapter, when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and came down from heaven to pour him above. And so just as a king or as a president, immediately upon becoming an anointed king or immediately upon being inaugurated and sworn in, his first term as a president, a king or a president will by his first act define or attempt to define his kingship or presidency. And so here we find our answer to the question, what kind of king will Jesus Christ be? What kind of king will Jesus Christ be? We read that right after his baptism at the Jordan, Jesus goes directly to the desert to be tempted by the devil. 
wondered if this was some kind of tragic and, and unfortunate twist to one of the events that our text has not told us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It tells us that this was no accident. Rather, it was God's plan for the story to take place. It was not the devil who ordered this temptation, but God. God is the one in charge here. He triggered this to happen. He ordained that his son did this. And as we get to this point, we discover that this passage is not an example of our Lord Jesus Christ being a victim, but instead being the aggressor. For he came to bind Satan, to spoil his kingdom. He comes as a, as a war general on a mission to assault the great enemy of God, the prince of darkness. This is what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Destroy the devil's work. And that is why at the outset of his ministry, Christ immediately faces off with the devil. How different is this from us? For when temptation arises in our lives, the one thing that should spring to our mind immediately every time is run. Run away. Flee. But for Christ, when it came to temptation, it was put in his mind by the Father was go. Enter into the devil's territory. Face off with him. Fend him off and defeat him. From the setting for this battle, you will notice it's not a boxing ring. Instead, we are told that our Lord Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. Here he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Those details might cause us to see some parallels here between the experience of Christ and the experience of the people of Israel who lived in the desert for 40 years after the exile. Some parallels can be seen there. But if we look even further back than that, then there's more for us to discover. For we know that deserts are dry and barren, lifeless places. Why would Jesus go here? Because it is the very opposite of where the first Adam was tempted. The first Adam was tempted in the garden. The garden of Eden, lush and green, full of life, full of beauty, full of presence. In the garden, Adam had God's provision all around him. And a companion there beside him. But Christ was brought out into the wilderness to be tempted alone. It was the curse of God that turned the garden into a wilderness. This is what God had said in Genesis 3. Cursed be the ground because of you. It was only out of God's goodness that he didn't turn this whole world into a desert. But he still today allows for crops to be grown and for fruit to be grown and flowers to be 
joy is out into the desert because time goes to the place that shows that the world, this whole world, is under a curse. And so the desert would have been a place in which the devil thought that he had the upper hand. So what did the desert prove that he had conquered the world? It was a reminder that the devil had achieved victory long ago over the first man, causing him to fall into the sin. Why would anyone think they could fare any better than the first Adam, who had achieved such a great equality with God? But without thinking ahead to how the testing and how the temptation would play out in our text, consider how Luke has set up this account of Christ's temptation Luke places the account of Jesus' temptation in the context of a Christian genealogy seen then in the first century Greece. And that genealogy there gives us a clue as to how Christ would fare under this temptation. For Luke's genealogy has one very specific intent, that is to reveal Christ as the long-lost descendant of Adam, and to show that he was the
always true, but it is especially true here. Every resource the devil had at his disposal is directed here at our Lord Jesus Christ and his temptation. So we come then to the first temptation. Verse 3. Verse 3, the devil detects that the Lord Jesus was extremely hungry. He goes to him with a with a kind of stone or a pebble and says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And what would that have been? Satisfy his hunger. And we know that our Lord Jesus had not eaten anything for nearly six whole weeks. I mean, imagine how desperately famished and weakened and thin he would have been. And yet this temptation is not just about food or satisfying hunger. No, Jesus is a temptation to unbelief, a temptation to distrust the Lord's providence. But at the same test, our Lord Jesus, he proves that he is God's son, and he used that to take a shortcut, to produce some quick relief for his hunger. Why rely on the Father to provide when you have the ability to perform miracles yourself? Same same conceit, how tempting this can be. But the problem is that if the Lord Jesus were to make out of this stone bread, then he would stop relying on his Father. And he'd be taking things into his own hands. He'd be exercising his own right. His right never to be hungry, his right never to be thirsty, his right never to be tempted. And this is actually a very profound and and potentially subtle attack. The devil is trying to divert Christ's attention away from his ministry to focus on his eternal dignity, his heavenly right. By so doing, Satan is just trying to to blind the Lord Jesus to his fundamental reason for coming into this world, which is his humiliation and death and carrying out the Father's plan for our salvation. But how does our Lord Jesus respond? He says, it is written, meaning that the scriptures that that are written in the past, are for today. They apply for today. God's word is not irrelevant. It's relevant for today. And so our Lord Jesus quotes from a passage from Deuteronomy 4, verse 3. And there in that passage, we are told about how Israel hungered in the wilderness, but that God provided for them by by giving them manna, that miracle of bread from heaven. And so, would not the Father also provide for his Son in his time of need? There was no reason to doubt the Father's plan. There never is. There's never a reason to take matters into one's own hands. And so, in this course, in this week, Christ shows that he is greater than the first chose the way of of exaltation, of becoming like God, while the Christ, the new 
five, we find the second temptation. Satan has been resisted once, but he will defeat the salvation of the godly. Anyone who understands something about temptation knows that this is not the devil's strategy. He returns with another temptation, this time to idolatry. He says in verse 7, temptation here is to break the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. In order to obtain this worship, Satan offers Jesus all the authority and all the splendor of all the kingdoms of the world. Give it to you all if you just want that. Just want that. Not one request. No one's going to know. One bow. this be the same temptation to our Lord Jesus? Did he ever show a hidden sign of being gripped by the love of money and power and greed and distraction of the world and wealth? Not in the least. If you think that our Lord Jesus came with a secret of sauce, isn't this the best you could do, Satan? Have you nothing better in your arsenal of
obedience to a father's servant. And he would only he would bow only before God, the Father, and do his will. So how does Jesus discard this temptation and quote the Daniel scripture? This time from Deuteronomy 6 and 13, we say, I must worship and serve none else but God. Lucifer even says, no, I won't take the easy way. I won't take a shortcut. Instead, I'll take the hard way, the only way, by bearing the cross and following the way of obedience that the Father has mapped out for me. As we come to the third and final temptation recorded for us in verse 29, in this temptation, the devil takes Christ to the high point of the temple. Many commentators believe that this was the eastern wall of the temple to which they go, overlooking the Kidron Valley. From this point, the drop down would have been 450 feet to a 40-story and Satan pulls out his Bible and he backs up his temptation with a quote from the scripture from Psalm 91 verse 11 and 12 where it says he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone here the devil points to the Lord's promises of faithful care for his people. And he says to our Lord Jesus, you trust God, don't you? So why not show it in a spectacular fashion? Why take the long, painful journey to the cross in order to show that you trust God? And if you can prove that trust now, don't bother with the humiliation and the rejection and the crucifixion and the condemnation skip the cross and accept your crown now but again our lord jesus replies to scripture this time from deuteronomy 6 verse 16 where it says do not put the lord your god to the test and by so doing christ points out that the bible is not only a book of promises though it is full of many promises but it is also a book containing blueprints plans for obedience towards a good living we cannot divorce god's promises from his commandments brothers and sisters don't think that putting god to the test is at all uncommon today pray for salvation when we neglect the means of grace it happens when we pray that God would save us help us and we don't open our Bibles don't search the scriptures don't regularly attend the worship services then we are questioning God or it happens when we pray that God will work in the hearts of our children we do nothing to to bring up our children in the fear of the Lord, but instead we teach them to love many other things. We question God. We go to sinful places 
created in visible things. And God, the Lord, is away from the world. We don't want to turn from those things. And so Scripture warns us, do not test the Lord your God. Do not test Him for though He may delay in responding, He will respond. He will act justly in it all. And with that, we come to the end of the sixth occasion and we come to our third point of victory, that is the triumph of sanctification. We read in verse 13 that when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Christ until an opportune time. So this tells us that Christ was triumphant over the devil's attacks. This verse kind of has a bit of an ominous sound to it. For it tells us that the devil would attack Christ again. And we know of a few more of those undercover satanic attacks on Christ later in his ministry. For example, St. Peter in Acts 16. Peter tried to steer Christ off his course to the cross by insisting that he should never have to die. To which Jesus replied, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Aside from that instance, St. Peter recalled the devil in his words of temptation launched at Christ while he hung on the cross. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. Come down from here, Satan. And in this statement, and may well be in others, I can record it for us, show us how the devil tries, beats him up, tries with all his might to divert Christ from the path he came to follow. But he couldn't stand it. He couldn't succeed. And so, through his being tempted, Christ shows us what sanctification is. It's testing, just like Adam and Eve were in paradise. But unlike them, forsake the Father's way or the easy way by taking a shortcut of stress. But instead, he committed himself to long-term faithfulness given for us. That's the good news for us today. Because of him and his redemptive work, there is mercy for those who have fallen into temptation, who have bowed the knee to Satan.
much that now we can give thought to Christ's example here. Christ could have, we know, repelled the devil in another way by simply performing a miracle. He could have frightened Satan off with mighty thunder from heaven. He could have called in the legions of of angel hosts to engage in combat with Satan and his demons. But he didn't do those things in either of those ways. Instead, he used the same instrument that is available to you and I, the word of God. With that word, he resisted every temptation that the devil threw at him. The word of God and active like a a double-edged sword do you know how to handle it do you ever hide this word in your heart in the hearts of your children so that you can remember it when you need it to constantly so you can use it in the battle and in the temptation for this word will make you strong in the day of temptation like David who says in Psalm 119, verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's important, brothers and sisters, that we learn how to overcome temptation. And the single most important thing that we need to grasp in order to overcome temptation is this. See how great, how glorious our Savior Jesus Christ is as our only Savior and Lord. He resisted the devil's pulling and pushing and prodding. He, in his prevailing over the devil, triumphed over the devil. This is how we overcome temptation. We find our hope in him. So let us fix our eyes on him by faith. For only he can be made the king of our souls. Let us pray.